Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. How do you think this makes your franchise better? Um, well, you know, do me a favor. Just kind of sit up and just, like, have a little respect for the process. Every day you come in and ask me questions and you just kind of, like, you know, give me this. But, I mean, like, just, just be a little respectful. Just I'm asking just to be a little respectful in this whole process, okay? So ask me a question professionally and I'll answer it for you. Hey, everybody. Uh, that's Matt Patricia. I don't know what the hell's going on right there. That was one of my favorite clips from the entire trade day deadline scenario in the NFL where there are so many trades. And Matt Patricia was being asked uh, about their decision to trade away Golden Tate and how it made their team better right now. Kind of a tricky question because, frankly, it doesn't make them better right this moment. I'm not going to judge Matt Patricia on this, Matt Patricia of the slovenly dress and manner and uh, poor facial hair grooming. You you might like his beard, but you can't say that that's like a professional beard by conventional standards. I don't know what this journalist looks like, the guy who's asking the questions, but sometimes there are uh, writers have an off-putting way about them, particularly young writers who haven't quite learned the social graces yet. I'm going to hold off until I learn more about this and I find out exactly what this kid's deal is, this writer that uh, was apparently so offensive to Matt Patricia in his manner and his way, in his unprofessional posture. Fascinating to me. And Matt Patricia, who seemed like this guy that might not end up being your typical grumpy head football coach, it's taken one half of an NFL season to transform him into a grumpy mess who doesn't have time for anybody or anything. God bless you, Matt Patricia. I hope you come through this on the other side okay because you seemed like you might be the one that broke the mold. And I hope, I honestly hope, for my own sake, really, just selfishly, because I want a guy to succeed in the NFL who isn't just so ridiculously angry about things all the time. Um, I hope that this was a case where you were in the right here, and this guy just needed to give. He needed to. He needed to have something told to him that maybe his parents didn't tell him when he was younger. One other good chunk of audio before we get into the bulk of our podcast today. The venerable Greg Williams, and by venerable I mean the exact opposite of Greg Williams, a guy who just verbally abuses his players, uh, a guy who thinks he's way tougher than he ever actually was, a man who, as Marv Levy might say, loves to be tough with other men's bodies. This is Greg Williams claiming uh, that he's had multiple opportunities to be a head football coach since he was last coach of the Buffalo Bills. That's a legitimate question. You know, Since I left Buffalo, I've had 11 letters sent in. To interview for head coaching jobs and and uh, and all of them behind the scenes I have and I have and four of them I didn't even have to show up just signed a contract and come but you know the structure has to be correct and um, you know I have my thoughts on how things have to be done I like things here a lot I will tell you this is that my biggest and right now all my focus and concentration is on this week and then let's build weeks upon weeks upon weeks and uh, see how, how much we can. And we, I can't ask the players to look ahead if I'm looking ahead. You don't do that. 
I actually want to believe Greg Williams here, and I might actually believe him if he had said that he'd had 11 letters of inquiry or at least invitations to interview. Uh, I would have preferred that he wouldn't have said letters because, frankly, nobody sends letters anymore. I, I guess emails or calls. If he's trying to claim that he actually got letters and envelopes, then he's flat out lying. But him claiming that he had four job offers, just flat out job offers, for one, uh, not necessarily strictly legally possible because the Rooney rule requires that you at least interview uh, minority candidates before you name your coach. Now, teams have obviously skirted that before. It looks very much like Mark Davis was going to hire John Gruden come hell or high water, no matter how many other uh, minority or, or other candidates might have been out there. But for whatever that's worth, that's a little that's a little fishy. And then just as the other is that, okay, maybe before in uh, Bounty Gate, you know, when you were implicated in paying players to injure opposing players, maybe before then, uh, but highly unlikely. And I just don't, I, I refuse to believe that Greg Williams was so judicious in choosing the right opportunity that he, cho- that he turned down four opportunities. Because I don't know, I don't know how often the opportunity comes around where it's that bad an opportunity, where you turn it down. Like the Browns, multiple people have turned down opportunities with the Browns. I would say that. Perhaps teams have turned down opportunities with the Raiders. Maybe the Bengals. I don't know. Um, But I'm just – nobody's buying this, Greg Williams. And if there's one fact of life, this is in literature, in modern times, this is steroids in baseball, whatever it might be, people are very forgiving if you show genuine contrition. If you are committed, uh, uh, convicted of a crime and you admit to it, and not even necessarily apologize, but show that you've been through the ringer somehow and have come out changed on the other end, people are very willing to forgive and forget and move on. In fact, they relish that opportunity. I think it makes us feel good about ourselves when we're able to forgive and forget, or at least not forget, but move on and give somebody a second chance. Greg Williams is the same asshole he's always been. He will never stop being an asshole. One of the biggest assholes on the face of the earth, and this is who he will remain. I kind of like that he's making ridiculous claims like this because it just cements his reputation in the minds of many, except that poor Cleveland Browns fans now have this guy as their interim head coach for, I'm guessing, the remainder of this season. Uh, I I don't want to be the person that wishes ill upon other people, but there's nothing worse than some doughy bastard who thinks he's being a tough guy by paying other people to be actual tough guys. And that's all it comes down to. This is a guy that was encouraging people to go out and take dirty shots to uh, take out people's ACLs. This is this is what Greg Williams is. And he made it look like and, and tried to pass it off as something that was commonplace in the NFL. Everything bad that can happen to this guy should happen to this guy. And yet he keeps getting opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Congratulations, Cleveland Browns. Congratulations, Jeff Fisher, for bringing him back into the league. Congratulations, everybody that just apparently doesn't give a damn. Uh, I'm done with him. I'm sick of this guy, Greggy 2Gs. I'm on to people that I do care about, Sean Pendergast and Michael Lombardi. Here we go. Sean Pendergast, I, I'm going to start calling you the triumphant Sean Pendergast. Oh. Every week you come in here, 
uh, having dominated. Where are you now against the spread? Uh, on the season, uh, funny you should ask, Seth. Yeah. Uh, I am at 58.4% on the season. 58.5% uh, yeah. on the season. I against was, the spread. Against the spread. I was 4-2 uh, and two last week, so that means over the last three weeks of doing the Deceptively Fast podcast with you, uh, I'm 13-5 and five against the spread. And I felt good for you. Um, I've had more fun watching games, especially the meaningless ones or the ones that have already been decided, because I know what your bets are. So last week when the Rams were closing out the game and they could have scored a touchdown, but Todd Gurley went down before he scored a touchdown to just cement the victory, a lot of people freaked out. And yeah. I, I find it interesting that people always act like Gurley must have pissed off the whole gambling world. We're like, no, he's helping out people like Sean Pendergast. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I got the – right, I had the Packers. And I would have been okay because I got the Packers at 10.5. Yeah. It, the line went back down. I, I think a lot of people, Seth, saw what I saw when, I, when you and I were talking about it last week. Like, holy crap, he's still Aaron Rodgers, and he's getting double-digit points against a defense that probably is a little bit more hype than substance right now. Um, and – and, and sure enough, the the Packers made a game out of it throughout the day. And I so, th anyways, I say that to say the line got up to ten and a half. That's where I got on it. At kickoff, it got down to eight and a half, nine. Yeah. And those are the people who, if yeah, if you bet the Packers and you saw what Gurley did, you're going, oh my god, thank God he took the knee at the one yard line. If you took the Rams, that is one of the most. I mean, if you're a gambler, that's one of the worst feelings in the world. Like watching a guy break into the open field. And going, oh my God, I'm about to steal this game. This is a game I. It's a game I have no business covering. Right, the Packers were ahead for the whole first half of that game. This is a game I have no business covering on. But I'm about to. I'm about to come away with a win. And then Todd Gurley does the actual smart football thing, which is go down at the two yard line, and then they just take a knee, and the game's over. Um, millions of dollars changed hands on that one decision by Todd Gurley. Probably. Thousands of fantasy football games were decided, but he's the he is the marquee guy to have in fantasy football. This wasn't like some random third stringer doing it. Like there are teams that rely on Todd Gurley, fantasy owners that rely on Todd Gurley to go get them forty fantasy points every week. It's one thing when a player does it, and okay, the touchdown would make it a one score game, and you slide and then kick a field goal because that makes that makes perfect strategic sense. Yeah. I guess in this instance, it's that okay, if Gurley had scored, it's a two score game. With only 10 or 11 seconds remaining at that point, so they've they've sealed the victory. When there's when there's a minute and a half left, yeah, and, they can and you go and down or something yeah. like then it, then I, it might feel a little bit better. I guess if I were gambling and it affected it, I the the fact that this one didn't it, it saved them a couple of plays, like so it saved them a kickoff, it saved them uh, you know potentially having to defend one play. Yeah, uh, the victory was there. Yeah, if you if you're a if you are a Rams backer in that game at minus eight and a half, that game was like one of those dates that you go on, and it's like it's kind of boring all day. This yeah. isn't going real well. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick this one out, and then you're giving her a ride home, and then all of a sudden she's inviting you up to the apartment, and then you get to the apartment, and like it's about to happen, and then she, you know, you know, I can bring up many reasons why it doesn't occur. It I, usually, I don't know how it's graphic, something like I, you say or something. Yeah, like all of a I don't sudden, know how graphic. Uh, I want to get on the deceptively fast podcast. I, I, I told an Irish joke. I didn't know you were Irish. Right. I don't Anyways, know. I said Todd something. Gurley was a walking case of blue balls. Is what he was <laughs> for Rams Packers in that game. But I was happy because I backed the Packers in that game. A lot of the stuff I wanted to ask you about 
is actually also directly related to some of your picks this week. Yeah, yeah. So just uh, we before we get to that, I guess two of the big stories will be that there's another Rodgers Brady showdown. And yes. Everybody's all on Twitter over that. I was telling Mike Meltzer, who thinks that Aaron Rodgers is the greatest quarterback who ever lived. <laughs> I I personally. I just do not understand the debate between Brady and Rodgers. Like, in my mind, Brady is so clearly and far and away the best quarterback of this generation that to compare the two, I, I know he doesn't have the same incredible physical feat highlights, but I just don't see it as, ev- as even a debate. Uh, I don't. Where do you stand? I on think it? it depends on what you're debating. I, you know, obviously Tom Brady is the greatest. He is the greatest quarterback in the in the history of the league in terms of accomplishment. Now, if Tom Brady, if you stuck him out there on some sort of, you know, those uh, those QB skills challenges they used to have back in the day, where guys would have to, you know, throw it at these moving targets and toss it into buckets, and nowadays they'd probably have him run a forty and things like that too, because of how this, the the positions evolved. But, you know, Brady would finish middle of the pack on that. He'd right. probably load up on the accuracy stuff, and then he'd be terrible on everything else. Aaron Rodgers, meanwhile, if you had a combine for quarterbacks, might win the thing when you take into account mobility, arm strength, arm strength moving around, you know, ability to throw the same ball regardless of what direction his body is going in. So I think that's the debate is, like, is that Rodgers may be the most talented. There was, even a, there was even a piece on ESPN yesterday – Speculating about a world that if Aaron Rodgers played for Bill Belichick, like oh, just, yeah. just like you know, what well, kind of Brady, nuclear weapon would that be? You Brady know? had that quote where supposedly, and I think this was somebody quoting Tom Brady saying something. So who knows what he actually said? But the gist of it was, you know, imagine if Rodgers knew what I know. Yeah, like I can tell that he doesn't know what I know. Just imagine if he knew all those things, and if he'd been coached the way that Brady had been coached. Because I think I, I've probably been harder on Mike McCarthy over the years than I should be. But the difference between him and some of the truly great offensive minds, I think, is just clear cut yeah. and, and evident in the offenses that they run. I also, though. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers is necessarily a great seeker of information the way Tom Brady is. I don't know if he has that same thirst and that hunger to just mentally dominate the game. You know, he's a bright guy and he's – but he's a naturally bright guy, do and you, I think he gets like he has that knack for things. But I don't get a, a, him as being like the film hound that Brady is. I'm going to answer your question in a second about where I come out on the Rodgers and Brady thing. But as long as you're bringing that up, do you think that more franchise quarterbacks, and I'm not talking about just the 32 starters. I'm talking about the guys that are above the line of being guys that can lead a team to a super. That can be the guy on a Super Bowl team. There's probably 15 of those guys. Maybe. Do you think more of them skew towards Brady? or Rodgers on that spectrum, on the thirst for knowledge spectrum? The thirst for knowledge spectrum. I think the guys that jump out immediately are, you're thinking, Drew Brees. i I, I got to stop saying Peyton Manning, I suppose. Um, I don't know if, you know, and then I don't know. Drew Brees, I, Ben Roethlisberger. Everybody, everybody watches film. I don't think Roethlisberger is. I read Bruce Arian's book, and he describes how Roethlisberger kind of got religion all of a sudden and realized what he had to do to prepare but I don't necessarily get the sense that sense that he has this legendary work ethic. Well, remember Emmanuel Sanders said as much when he went to Denver for the first time. And you I watch Peyton. Yeah, like he he kind of just put it out there. Wow, you don't see Ben doing all this extra stuff that Peyton Manning does. I I think it's probably unfair to compare a lot of people to Tom Brady when it comes to the obsession factor. Yeah, yeah. That that's why I'm trying. That that's what I'm trying to figure out with with your take on Rodgers is like is. 
is it fair to compare him to Brady, or is it just a fact? And then that Rodgers happens to be more like a lot of the guys that are in that tier of quarterback right? in that nobody is at Brady's level in terms of the obsession with being great. I don't think you can be what he is in his 40s now without being just ridiculously obsessed with, with being the best at what you do. To answer your question, if I had to pick one of those two guys to win a football game for me on generic team with generic coach, I would pick Aaron Rodgers. Really? Because of the talent factor. Um, and I feel like he's overcome more with his coaching, because I'm with you on Mike McCarthy. Um, I feel like he's overcome more in terms of coaching, whereas Brady has really benefited throughout the course of his career um, from, from having Bill Belichick. So I, He's also probably overcome more in terms of the defensive side of his team. Like Brady? there's a no um Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. Rogers has had to deal with more inept defense than yeah. Brady's yeah. Had, right? I, Brady like and the, the the Patriots defense is never or usually isn't quite as good as people want to say it is, but it's usually better in the second half of the season. And um and it's very solid. And it's typically. great situationally. Yeah. Like you the defense for the Patriots is rarely gonna do something that's gonna that's going to put you out of a game. Yeah. Whereas if I, if I had to go back and look, I would guess the Packers defense has failed them miserably on at least a few occasions during the Rodgers era. Uh, the other story I wanted to touch on was just the saga of Le'Veon Bell oh. and whether he will or will not report. Maybe I missed something today, but uh, Le'Veon Bell, everybody's guessing is going to report. What is uh, the deadline? Is it week 11? I don't – yeah, it's – uh, you know, I know for one, if he didn't sign the franchise tender before the trade deadline, then the Steelers couldn't trade him. So that was one hurdle. That was one obstacle yeah. that they wanted to cross. I'm just wondering now at this point, I mean, James Conner is the AFC's offensive player of the month. And in a lot of respects is outplaying Le'Veon Bell. Yeah. In terms of like his average yards per catch, his yards per carry on first down, a lot of the things that you want out of Le'Veon Bell – and I, you know, James Conner had it. Conner had a fast start, and I know I was one of the people that said, "Okay, look, but he's no Le'Veon Bell." I don't know. I think they're going to get enough out of him. I don't know if the Steelers are going to be. Maybe the Steelers get to the point where even if he signs, they just flat out let him sit and rot. I don't. I don't know. But I don't know if Le'Veon Bell would care if that were the case. But he's got to come. He's got to get those. Let's see. Is it is it eight games? I, I think it's. I think week eleven is what I heard when he has to be in. So that would be seven games. That something he'd have to whatever. Get, just yeah. whatever he needs to get to get that vested yeah, year. Yes, so seven. That'd be seven games. Yeah. So uh, whatever it is, I'm. Sh- what it, the bottom line is, be Levy- six games with the bye week. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So the, the important thing is, Le'Veon Bell knows what that date is. Yeah. You know. So he. So let's whatever the date may be. Let's just assume that he knows what it is. And I here's. Here's where I would normally like I would hesitate to criticize Le'Veon Bell is that we don't know like people have their own decisions for deciding what to do with their careers. If you know if if he were just to wanna like, hey, I just need to get away from the game for a little while and I think this is what's right for me to get away from the game, okay. I you know, like boy, you have very few really good earning years as a running back in the NFL, but that's your decision. You know, if it's not what I would do. I think Le'Veon Bell has come out and said, though, that the reason he's holding out is to preserve, basically preserve miles on his body because he thinks he's going to make that money up on the open market. And I'm not so sure that he is. I know. I'm not well, so now sure when that, he gets to this point, no, the amount of money that he's forfeited and for what he is, he's still a running back trying to get a long-term deal. And this whole saga has not been a good look for him off the field either from the standpoint of the Steelers. The Steelers, usually teams almost universally publicly back a guy who's doing this. The players. The players, right. yeah, yeah, the players. They don't like to pocket watch, and they go, well, it's a business, and this is the business side of it. 
the Steelers have been the exact opposite. I don't know if all 53 guys feel the same way that some of these guys who've spoken out uh, have, but these are his offensive linemen, man. These are the guys that block for him, and they've been like us. They're basically like, screw him. And the other thing with the Steelers, Seth, is that you bring it up. James Conner, who's on a rookie deal for the next two years after this, I think he was a mid-round pick, um, very popular, by the way, went to Pitt, beat cancer, all that stuff. But just purely from a fiscal standpoint, the Steelers have a lot of holes they need to fill on the defensive side of the ball this right. offseason. And this James Conner thing, when you compare it to what you'd have to pay Le'Veon Bell, you got to ask yourself, man, if we could just use that money and go out and get a top-flight cornerback or something, their pass defense is, is not good. You know, maybe they can use that money somewhere else. So maybe there's a drop-off from Bell to Connor, but it's not a real noticeable one as long as you got all your other weapons and as long as Ben's still playing quarterback. And then you use that money to shore up things. I think they're pretty good in their front seven with Pittsburgh. Their secondary is atrocious. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating turn of events because every step along the way from October 30th being one potential deadline to now November 13th is when yeah. he would have to report if he wants to play this year and get credit for it. Um, is that what it is, November 13th? November 13th, okay. yeah. If he has any intentions this on is playing week, in this 2018. This is week 9, then week 10. Okay, so before week 11, like right. you said. Yeah. So it's coming up. Yeah. And we'll figure out. It's just I, – I don't even like to think about what the locker room situation is like there. <laughs> like when he walks in the door. I try to put myself in Le'Veon Bell's shoes. And I'm guessing, like, all right, if I'm Le'Veon Bell, I'm probably a lot more naturally cocky than I am. But I'm walking in, and I've got guys who have publicly questioned – um, or just publicly criticize my holdout. You get the sense the offensive linemen feel that they've been lied to by him. Yeah. And just like, I don't know, like, what's your first one? You just got to go in and roll with it and, well, and laugh, you know, and pop a few jokes. And they're getting by without you. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. the other thing. It was, you know, it took, it took a few weeks. James Conner, if I remember correctly, came out, had a really big debut this season. Not debut, but debut for 2018 he had a big week one and then he kind of drifted off the map a little bit for a few weeks but now he's setting records the last three weeks in yeah. multi-touchdown games and things like that so Le'Veon Bell's not really dealing from a position of strength both culturally in the locker room as well as just production wise on the field and certainly from a from a financial standpoint and I do wonder what other teams think of him when he's not playing behind a really good offensive line um, or or that Pittsburgh Steelers type of offensive line because of his running style and what works for him. Yeah. He's not he, – like, he doesn't have to deal with a whole lot of backfield penetration playing behind that line. He can he can sit and wait and then pick his hole as the play develops. And they pull guards. They run a lot of power schemes, like a lot of old-school, slow-developing run plays. Not every team in the NFL runs that same type of Yeah, system. he's not a guy you can just – like envision and plug in and go, well, this guy, you know, this guy, hey, he's 1,400 yards and another 700 yards in the receiving game. We plug him in and we're great. He does have a really, really unique – he has a unique, almost counterintuitive running style, yeah. right? People tell you, you know, be decisive and hit the hole, and and he's the opposite of that. He he sits back there and he picks, and you – I mean, the way offensive line play is in the NFL nowadays, my guess is there's like three-fourths of the league. You can't do that. He might be getting tackled for a loss yeah, each time. Yeah, yeah. That'll actually bring us to one of your picks. Mm -hmm. the, you're taking the Seahawks minus two over the Chargers. I am. For me, the Seahawks and – their rediscovery of how much it helps to have a good offensive line has been fun to watch because they're playing better on the offensive line. Um, they're getting the wide receivers and tight ends involved in pass protection. Like, they're just flat out doing what they should have been doing for a long time, which is, hey, you've got this bright young quarterback in Russell Wilson. Don't try to I, – I felt like this – 
Seahawks for a long time felt like the progression needed to be, hey, okay, over the course of four, five, six years, we'll just put it all on Russell Wilson's right, shoulders right. and make him do everything <laughs> and pretend he's Tom Brady or something. Where now they've rediscovered that, okay, if we run the ball well, if we protect him, wow, we can get a whole lot out of Russell Wilson. That's not like a backhanded compliment towards Russell Wilson at all. It's just the the method that works with him, and it looks like they've figured that out. Yeah, it's weird. They're running the football really, really well. Yeah. They have all, they've all of a sudden evolved into this kind of smash-mouth team that's not leaning on Russell Wilson anymore. Yeah, the, the reason I like them in this game, I they're also, as we talk about turmoil in the locker room and just black clouds in the locker room and things like that, I would be curious what the whole Earl Thomas thing was doing to the Seattle locker room. Mm. That's a guy who flipped off the team as he was being carted off the field, and he was – very, he was more public than Le'Veon Bell about what he thought of the Seahawks. Like Le'Veon Bell, I don't know that I get the sense he hates the Steelers. I think he hates, I think he hates how they're doing business with him. But I got the sense there was like legitimate acrimony with Earl Thomas and the people making the decisions with the Seahawks. And he was very public about it. Very public about talking about where he'd want to go play if he weren't playing for the Seahawks. I don't know if it's a coincidence, and I don't know if this is just me being a media guy reading into too many things. But since Earl Thomas went down with that injury against Arizona, they're 2-1 and one straight up. The one loss is a two-point loss to the undefeated Rams, and they're 3-0 and oh against the spread. They covered the spread against the Rams by about a touchdown, and they blew out the two teams that they played that they've won those games. I, I wonder, as long as we're talking about locker rooms, I wonder if there's some sort of relief, sort of a sigh of relief. Those personalities in that Legion of Boom were gigantic personalities that I my guess has had the potential to be very – polarizing we know that they polarized that locker room when it came to Russell Wilson yeah that they were not that happy with him so I feel like that may be a more harmonious locker room and that I also feel like that's still a great home field advantage and while the Chargers are a team that I've said to you hey they could be the second best team in football for all we know they've only lost to the Rams and the Chiefs they're still the Chargers. The games that they've won, they've had a couple – you know, they beat the Titans because Rabel decided to go for a two-point conversion. They beat the, the 49ers without Jimmy Garoppolo by two points, I think, at home. Right. Um, so you still don't know what you're getting with the Chargers. So I don't know, even coming off a of bye week, I don't know that this is a, a spot where I'm ready to back Phillip Rivers – getting under a field goal. I love that the spread's under a field goal because basically all the Seahawks need to do is win the game. It's a really good note. Um, uh, or it, it, it's it's an interesting timeline that when Earl Thomas left, some of these things started to get better because Russell Wilson, I think, was always going to be held back by some of the elder guys on that team, and it's not even their fault. It's like you said, they're huge personalities, and Russell Wilson was just kind of a fresh-faced kid that – I don't think he has the natural personality that he's all of a sudden going to take over a team or take over a locker room. But there was almost that that a lack of respect by the defense, according to reports, that probably did harm Russell Wilson's ability to really be looked at and viewed as a leader or as like as it being his team. Yeah, I I wonder too. And again, you know, social media is what it is. So. I wonder, too, how much of Russell Wilson – I think on social media the guy comes across as being kind of a phony, you know, very, very uh, contrived. I think he's a great quarterback. I think he's one of the five or six best quarterbacks in the league. I really like Russell Wilson as a player. I wonder how much of that personality that we've seen put out there by Russell Wilson is also how he is behind the scenes and if maybe the defense didn't think, like, if they weren't all that into his leadership style. That could be. Yeah, and also there's just part of the Seahawks where – I, I think it was destined to self-destruct in kind of a spectacular fashion because 
your whole theory and philosophy was we're going to let everybody compete for jobs. We don't care who you are, if you're a first rounder, if you're a free agent, whatever, your job is on the line. Well, once they had success, you can only hold to that philosophy for so long because you got to pay your Richard Shermans. You got to pay these other guys, you know, and at some point, I don't like to say it's a house of cards because it was a beautiful house of cards for a while. It was. But you're going to fall under your own weight at some point if you still try to have that same philosophy because you're going to be you're, – you're not going to be able to sustain it and then you look like a hypocrite. Especially when your head coach is Pete Carroll, who is more of a laissez-faire kind of guy, who's probably going to let this whole thing deconstruct of its own momentum. He's not nipping it in the bud, right? <laughs> right, yeah. right. It's, hey, you know, everything's got its own sort of gravity he here. He kind of just let it burn to the ground to create the fertilizer for a new forest. Exactly. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't managing the forest yes. actively. He's just like, all right, we're just <laughs> – we're going to let the thing burn, and then there will be new, fresh new trees. I bring in fire trucks. We'll grow yeah. again. Uh, let's see. You've got the Chiefs minus nine over the Browns. Yeah. Bold move. Bold move picking somebody over the Browns. Are you, <laughs> you are picking the Chiefs. I'm picking the Chiefs yeah. minus nine over the Browns, yeah. You're, yeah. Not, you're not trusting Greg Williams is going to come and be that. What about that? I love the audio Honestly, that you guys played. What about the interim coach spark that we sometimes see? We played the audio of Greg Williams yeah. claiming, claiming that he's had 11 inquiries and four – Four actual head coach job offers since he left the Bills some 15 or years ago or so. Anytime I make a bet, Seth, I, I do one last. I learned this through the years. I, I ended up losing games that I bet on inept head coaches and inept quarterbacks enough times to where I finally started doing this. As soon as I would make a bet, I would just take the headshots from the, the, uh, the, the media guides. Yeah. And I would just take one last look at the headshots, and I would say, do I want to bet on this guy? And I feel like – or the opposite. Do I feel good betting against this guy? And, and look, I get it. If you do that for every game, there are certain teams you're just never going to bet on or never going to bet for. Yeah. And right now I'm not going to bet. I, right you're now I'm Andy Reid versus – Andy Reid and Patrick Greg Mahomes Williams. versus Greg Williams. Yeah, Baker's yeah. fine. You know, Baker, the headband thing I could do without – but I'm just looking at Greg Williams' face, and I'm picturing all those vignettes from Hard Knocks of what a clown he is. <laughs> and I just know that that not only am I not going to back the Browns, but I would be kicking myself if I didn't just dip my toe in the Greg Williams water at least one week, especially when you're backing a team that might be the best team in football. Greg Williams is just so full of crap. Yeah. I don't know how anybody can take him seriously. We had Ross Tucker on yesterday, and he said he, he never bothered him because – he kind of looked at him as like, all right, like a caricature almost it seemed. Like, okay, this guy's insulting everybody and saying such ridiculous things that how can you take him seriously? He's claiming yesterday that that, that teams have sent him letters. Uh, letters. Like, he used the word letters. Yeah. Like, nobody is sending you letters, no. but that's what he's trying to use to claim that he's been offered uh, four head coaching positions. Handwritten thank you notes. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. Those are the only written, that's the only written correspondence that gets sent anymore. Nobody's offering a job with a letter these you, days, not in the NFL. You and, I, you and I did deep dives on Hard Knocks during the preseason yeah. on this podcast, and I need to go back and watch it now um, because I feel like we were pretty – like in line with this guy is going to get whacked at some point. So I need to go back. I need to go back and watch Hard Knocks, Game of Thrones, and The Sopranos and see if the most obvious whacking that we could see coming on HBO was Hugh Jackson's oh, whacking yeah. on Hard Knocks. I feel like Big Pussy in season two of The Sopranos 
we could see that one coming. Oh, yeah, because he had already turned informant by yeah, then, right? And, you know, and like, Tony, hey, this, guy, this guy's not bright enough to pull it off. No, yeah. he's the Hugh Jackson of the Soprano crew. Yeah. And, and and Tony invites him out to go boat shopping, and you're like, well, here it comes. Yeah. You know, like, he's Tony ain't, you know, Tony ain't getting looking for Big Pussy's opinion on a boat. Game of Thrones is usually pretty good about the surprise factor with their whackings. I mean, I think we know who's, like, in line for it, but – like it, it can cut. Like when Ned Stark went down in season one, that was like the that was the that was like the moment where you're like, holy crap, anybody can get killed on this show. The thing with Hugh Jackson, and this is uh, this is where Jimmy Haslam was such a great writer and producer of <laughs> this year's Cleveland Browns, right. was that there was no guessing what level of patience they were going to have for a coach who'd only won two games in the previous two years. Yep. So like, what do we? What or wait? Or was it one game? Wait, he went one game in two he years. He went one in fifteen, he's, and then he, that's right. He's that's won right. two this year. Yeah, so yeah. he won. He had one game. So you're watching her in hard knocks, and you'd say, "Well, clearly he's going to get fired if they don't turn this around." But they've already let him go two years and winning only one game. Yeah, maybe they don't fire him. So uh, I, that's that's where I didn't know for sure what it would take. And now Michael Lombardi's contention, which you guys can hear later this afternoon um, or later on this podcast, I think his contention that he wrote in the Athletic was that Jimmy Haslam is almost too concerned with whether people get along in the front office and amongst yeah. the than, than actual productivity. And that the really scary thing for Browns fans should be that they didn't ha- they didn't fire Hugh Jackson because he wasn't winning football games. They fired him because Jimmy Haslam didn't like him and uh, Todd um, Haley. Todd Haley yeah. having like all this infighting. Yeah. Like, okay, no, that's fine. You know what? Infight. In fight. If you're winning games when you're in fighting, that's beautiful. I think you had a little bit of that with the Steelers over the last few years. Yeah. No problem. You got in fighting as long as you're producing, go for it. I heard you guys say this. I can't remember if it was you guys or Lombardi who said this, but I think it was Lombardi said, I can't believe, and I'm paraphrasing, and spoiler alert because it's coming up later on this podcast, <laughs> but, but when he said, I'm bringing it up because it's relevant here, I like when he said that I can't believe Jimmy Haslam doesn't run his team like he runs his businesses, yeah. I got to believe that Jimmy Haslam runs his businesses like any good CEO with accounting for the right amount of constructive conflict inside the business. Especially somebody in the trucking industry. Yeah, right? This isn't like some feel-goodery. This is like the trucking yeah, industry. Yeah, Yankee kind of Candle like, or yeah, something like that. Yeah. You know, like it's, yeah, this is a business of blue-collar people. It's not HR at Whole Foods. <laughs> right? This is, yeah, this is dealing with truck stops and truckers. Unions and, and everything and, else. And, you know screwing over some small trucking companies yeah. like he's kind of cutthroat uh, here's the thing like i i'm i'm totally cool with these teams yeah they continue to bang their head against the wall doing it because it's one less team to worry about in the nfl like uh, that's what i'm fascinated with because you, you know you see teams that do it a certain way everybody goes well why don't why doesn't everybody do it like the patriots do it or like whatever you know whatever teams that have been successful it would be interesting if everybody started to do it that way because it's a zero-sum league. Like every everybody's got sixteen teams win and sixteen teams lose every it, Sunday. You teams know? have gotten more streamlined over the years, and things have gotten more professional. Like I think, it, like you look at baseball, where I think there used to be a lot of owners and GMs going out, getting drunk, and making deals. Yeah, that was more common like twenty, thirty, four years ago. Right, uh, that doesn't happen as much anymore, uh, no. if, if ever. And I think. Teams are more like the Patriots than they used to be, but some teams are just simply better at doing it than others. The key with the guys who are analytic guys, like Daryl Morey and the baseball guys, Luno, and guys who run things from that standpoint, is that it's 
it's not just this blanket thing with analytics. They're always looking for what the next thing is going to be because they realize whatever they're doing is probably going to work and that most, not all, but most of the league is probably going to start right. to incorporate elements of that. So once they do, you're now on an even playing field again. So it's really in the moment you need to be thinking all the time about what we're going to be doing differently three or four years from now. That's what the good teams do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, last NFL pick you had was Redskins minus two mm-hmm. over the Falcons. I like that pick. I think the, the Falcons' offense is – they've got some serious issues right now with their offensive line. And then the Redskins' defense – I don't know if I want to say they're underrated because I've heard a lot of people now say that they're underrated, but the Redskins defense is looking more and more like something that could actually help you in the postseason. Um, and yeah. I think people are starting to take the Redskins much more seriously. They made a trade for HaHa Clinton Dix, which, you know, like on paper, I, I like HaHa Clinton Dix fine as a player, but I love the message it sends probably to that locker room, that like management. The same way the Texans got that message trading for Demarius Thomas. I think that has a, I think that has a galvanizing sort of effect. And the Redskins – I'll be honest with you. When I was looking at you know doing my run through the standings on Monday, I'm going, holy crap, they're five and two. Yeah, I you know they they they're a team that just kind of that kind of finds a way to do these things. And this whole the whole Andy Reid, Mahomes, Alex Smith sort of chain, it's like one of those love triangles that everybody's happier at the end of it. You know, the Chiefs are obviously very happy. I think Alex Smith is in a really good spot in a division that's imminently winnable um, in the uh, in the NFC East. I think that Washington defense is 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 pretty good. I think it's it's underrated. And the Falcons, I think there's a good chance that the Falcons just are not a very good team. I know they've got a lot of glitz with Matt Ryan being a couple years removed from an MVP. Calvin Ridley has come in nicely as a rookie. Julio Jones still hasn't caught a touchdown pass yet mm-hmm. this season. Um, so I, I think Atlanta is, I think, one of those teams from a public standpoint that the public looks at as three and four and says, well, they're three and four, but they've got this guy, this guy, and that guy. They could really turn it around. Well, people don't realize – they played seven games. They've already burnt five home games. They play six of their final nine games of the season on the road. Oh, wow. So they're a three and four team. That's things, r- things are getting a lot tougher for a team that doesn't have the greatest reputation of being a tough football team. No, no, and I don't like Steve Sarkeesian as an offensive coordinator there. I, that has not worked out well. Um, and that division, I there's, there's a delicate balance, and you as a former player can probably speak to this uh, better than I can, but – there's one side where you go, well, they're three and four, and they're in a division with Carolina and New Orleans. So, man, they got to win this game this weekend. And yet you look up, and it's halfway through the season, and you wonder how many guys in that locker room look up and go, <laughs> Carolina's whatever they are, five and two, and New Orleans is six and one or seven and one, three games back. We're like, we, for who, for what? Like, we're, what, are we going to get a wild card and get fed to one of these guys? I feel like we're I at was- that point in the season where there's a delicate balance between must win and must get to Cabo for week 18. I'll, I'll say this. I think when you get to that must-win game, the urgency is real. But, man, when you when you can't win that must-win game, it can be really demoralizing. Dream crusher. It can really, uh, Dream it can really take a toll on you because that's when you're also getting really physically tired. Yep. What are your uh, college my picks? My college picks, I'll give them to you quickly here, Seth. And you, if you want to read more about them, you can uh, get my stuff on HoustonPress.com. Georgia Tech minus 6.5 over North Carolina. This is basically a Mad Lib of my Wake Forest over Louisville pick from last. I picked Wake Forest last week because they can run the football. They love to run the football. And Louisville sucks at stopping the run. In college, the running game travels best. And Georgia Tech, we know, loves to run that triple option. North Carolina is one of the worst teams at stopping the run. And they're at a stage this season where they've cashed it in. Georgia Tech's won three out of four. So I like the uh, like the Yellow Jackets there. Florida minus six and a half over Missouri. I got a number for you. Oh. Drew Locke. Yes. Quarterback of Missouri, who I think people think is going to be a first-round pick, 
against uh, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, and Kentucky. One touchdown, four interceptions mm-hmm. against all the other teams on the schedule. Twenty touchdowns and one interception. That's a big. That's a big flag for somebody like Drew Locke, who people question whether he's genuinely worth a first round pick. Yeah. The first thing they look at is how are you versus top talent. He's and a lamb killer. Yeah. He's a lamb killer, and I think Florida. Of course, you know what? Being a lamb killer got Mitchell Trubisky drafted very high. <laughs> it overall, did. So. No, so there's there's <laughs> dumb teams out there. It only takes one team to fall. Florida, I think, is going to come in a little angry off that loss to Georgia last week, where the score was not. They've lost by three touchdowns, but they they turned the ball over three times in that game. So Florida minus six and a half over Missouri. And quickly, my last one is, oh, where are you? Oh, the Seminoles. NC State minus seven over Florida State. When your coach, after a game, which Willie Taggart did after the Clemson game this week, calls your team a bunch of quitters and talks about what he needs to start recruiting for next year, and you're only laying a touchdown, or maybe in this case nine and a half, so a touchdown and a field goal on the road, you fade that team. We gotta we gotta talk to our guy Travis Johnson about that at some point. Oh, might have him. Uh, have I think him he wanted Willie Taggart too. Yeah, I remember yeah. him backing him on Twitter last year. Oh uh, Ben, you gotta get up to the Woodlands to uh, Twin Peaks. Shenandoah, yep, yep, and Twin Peaks in the Woodlands. All right, we're at little luck. Little Woodrow's in Midtown for Football Friday. Ah, okay. Yep, excellent. Little Woodrow's always fun. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Sean is awesome. You can follow him on Twitter at Sean T Pendergast, and as he mentioned. Read his written word on HoustonPress.com. He does really good stuff there. Just a funny guy. Up next, Michael Lombardi. We asked him about the Texans acquiring Demarius Thomas. Also, his skepticism over interim Browns head coach Greg Williams' claim that he was flat-out offered four head coaching opportunities since he was last a head coach in Buffalo. The entire NFL world is skeptical of this, but it's nice to hear somebody like Lombardi, uh, who has a whole lot of experience in the hiring and firing of coaches, exactly what he thinks of Greg Williams' absurd claim. That and more right now. And first we're going to hear from Deshaun Watson. I'm very excited. Uh, This is a great opportunity for him, for us, uh, to be able to do the things we wanted to do and uh, have a veteran guy to come. Uh, not just help us out, but, um, you know, help myself out. You know, he's played a lot of football. He's been around a lot of uh, different quarterbacks that had a lot of experience, so um, I can also learn from him. That, of course, is Deshaun Watson talking about the new addition to the Texans, Demarius Thomas. Uh, Joining us now, we have Michael Lombardi, who writes for The Ringer, The Athletic. He's a longtime NFL personnel man. He has a book out called Gridiron Genius. Michael, uh, tell us what are your initial thoughts about the Texans acquiring Demarius Thomas? Well, look, I think they had to do something. I mean, when they lose Will Fuller, who was a huge part of what they do offensively, this was a critical move to make. I I think the key component here is Sammy Coates. Can Sammy Coates stretch the outside? Can he at least be a threat? Is he somebody out there that can help? I think Demarius Thomas and certainly Hopkins are going to be able to help with the inside. But they need a vertical to get it off the top, and that's what Fuller was so good at doing. Fuller, really, this offense came alive when Fuller got back healthy, and I think that Thomas isn't going to give them that vertical stretch, so somebody else has to, but he'll give them another second outlet that they need. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I got excited about Sammy Coates in the offseason, you know, when you watch some of his highlights over the last couple years. Why do you suppose that he's been so marginalized? Is it just because you already had Fuller, you had Kiki QT? He's had very few actual reps on offense this year. Yeah, no, I think I think they're going to need him. I mean, look, you got you got to be able to stretch from the outside the numbers to the sideline. You got to be able to stretch that part of the field, and Fuller could do that. And Fuller was so good, he could do the other things inside as well. You know, that snag route he ran the other night 
on Thursday night were the big game that kind of got their offense going. That, that's something, you know, that Coach probably isn't going to do very well, but he did it. Plus, he can take the top off the defense, which is important. They need somebody. It's, it's a little bit like basketball. you got to space the court in the NFL, and you got to space the field. And I think Thomas will help him. He can't drop the ball. He leads the league at seven drops this year, so he's got to play catch the ball much better. But he gives him a threat. You've got to defend him, and people respect his game. And they're going to go out there, which will help Hopkins tremendously. Because if not, this offense is just going to shut down because people are just going to double Hopkins. How much do you think Demarius has left? Uh, you know, I think for the, for the Texans, you hope it's eight games. I think that's the key. I mean, look, this whole trade deadline was about players that had the end of their contracts. Teams knew they weren't going to resign, and they decided to just pass along, take, take the pick as opposed to take the defensory pick. That's essentially what it was about. And I think he has at least eight games, and that's what they need. Maybe more because if they get when they get to the playoffs, they're going to need them more in there. But I'm not sure much of what his future is going to be like. He's due to make, I think, 14 million next year. That was never going to happen. Is the change to the trade deadline the reason that we're seeing general managers so much more aggressive around this time of season, or is there something else going on? It, it's all about the compensatory picks. It's all about taking the picks now. You know, Detroit's not going to sign Golden Tate. They took a third round hard pick as opposed to waiting for him in free agency. It's really about just – it's all about the compensatory picks. It's the manipulation of the compensatory picks. That's why we have trades. The Packers were not going to sign ha-ha Clinton Dix, so they took a fourth-round pick as opposed to waiting for time to get him. It's a bird-in-the-hand concept. That's the only reason why we have more trades. When you were a general manager, was it frustrating for you at times like the trade deadline where you realized, man, teams could be helping themselves a lot more if more GMs were willing to barter? Yeah, well, I think the problem is most GMs overvalue their team. I mean, let's take Jameis Winston, for example. He's due to make $20 million. It's fully guaranteed for, for injury next year. If the Bucks play him and he gets hurt, oh, my, they're on the hook for $20 million. You know, so you should try to trade him now, but nobody, nobody's going to take the $20 million deal. And they overvalue Jameis Winston. They think he's their franchise quarterback. So there's so much unrealistic, unrealistic evaluation of talent in the league right now. Michael, I have a follow-up question about that, the fifth-year option. And maybe I don't have it right in my mind, but that option is basically – because I know that's that's written about a lot on social media, that if you play a guy, you risk having that money guaranteed for the next season for injury. But, like, how many injuries do you have, short of, like, the very, very serious ones in the NFL, to where a guy like Jameis Winston wouldn't even try to play football in 2019? Well, that's true. But say he was, unfortunately, saying a knee injury, and then, then it ties your money up. You guarantee it. Once he is, once he can't pass your physical, that skill comes into effect. Now it's guaranteed. You can't get away from it. Okay. Whether it's, you know, so you're tied into it. You can't move away from it. it. Isn't you know? And then he signs the tender, and then once he signs it, it's fully guaranteed. So you can't revoke the tender when he's not healthy. So if you're a smart player and you have a knee surgery, and say you're going to be ready to play sometime in August, you sign that tender in March. Now that now they own you. Michael, uh, Greg Williams claims that he was offered four jobs where all he had to do was accept the head coaching job. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on whether or not you think he was telling the truth. I am curious about this. He claims he was sent letters. Are, are, are teams still Stop. sending letters? That's, that's, it's a joke. And it's just, I mean, how can people listen to this guy? It's a joke. <laughs> the guy's lucky to be back in the league. He got suspended for bounty gate, and he's lying like this. Nobody sends letters. That's not how we do business in the NFL. This is a comedy. I mean, there's a fact that he got that he can say it with a straight face is beyond my own comprehension. <laughs> so, so Mike, I didn't buy him when he was saying it on Hard Knocks, but then when I take a listen to him and I realize. 
realize that he has not been a head coach in 15 years. Is it possible that over 15 years he has at least gotten no. four? No. No. <laughs> no, it's not even close to being possible. Stop, stop. It's not even close. It's a joke. It's a comedy. You know, it would be like it would be like me becoming the, the director of biology at Stanford University. Like I've gotten 11 letters from them. They want me to go out there and represent them. Get out of here. Come on, stop. I think we're just in a state now where people in public positions feel like they can just say anything. Like I'm going to claim I was offered like the nightly news anchor job at NBC last yeah. year, but I turned okay. it down to do uh, had local four radio. Letters. You had four letters. Bring the four letters in and show it to us, okay? Please. Can you do that? He can't do it. Uh, Michael, what is it like? Um, let me put it this way. What's it like working for the Browns? Like, what? What? I feel like everybody. I, you know, I wrote about it. I wrote about it. Seth, Jimmy Haslam has. You know, he has all this unbelievable. You know, he's made all this money in his company, but he refuses to work to, to run the Browns like his company. They have no culture, right? They, he wants a collaborative effort, like collaborations for rock and roll bands. It ain't for NFL teams. The NFL teams are a paramilitary organization. They need structure. This ain't the Dave Clark Five. You need a leader who's <laughs> commanding from the top down, right? They, you know, everybody wants to collaborate. The more people you have involved, look, there's a reality. They've never dedicated a monument to a committee. And so that's never going to happen. You need a leader, and this is what Haslam misses. So there are a lot of rumors about Lincoln Riley. I'm curious your thoughts about the links between Cleveland and Lincoln Riley. And just uh, more broad, Mike, just, you know, Lincoln Riley is a guy who basically around the country people love. Is that someone who you think definitely will end up in the NFL at some point here with his offensive coaching ability? Yeah, I mean, I think it will be Dallas. I think if he's going to go anywhere, it's Dallas. Dallas is in love with him. Stephen Jones spent a college weekend up there. He spent a lot of time around him. I think they love him. I don't think he's going to go to Cleveland. I think that's not going to be the case. But I think they like his offense, and I think people kind of fall in love. Good-looking guy, offense, young. That's what everybody's looking for. I, the name that you brought up uh, with Cleveland is one that I got very territorial over it because uh, you brought up Dabo Swinney. Dabo is currently the manager of the Texans AAA squad, uh, and he cultivates Clemson talent for the Houston Texans. I, I don't want to see Dabo Swinney go anywhere else. I think he's a look. Dabo does what exactly what the Browns need. He builds culture, and the Browns are caught up with running an offense, running a defense. They need a culture. They need somebody to lay, and that's what Jimmy Haslam has missed since he's bought the team. Who's the next coach to get canned? Well, that's a tough one. You know, I I think Vance Joseph could be the next coach to get canned, but I don't think it'll happen in season. What do you think of the job that John Elway has done the last couple of years? I think he's been fortunate. You know, the heist took him off the hook by taking that deal in Houston, right? <laughs> yep. So that took him off the hook. And then, you know, he hasn't been able to draft the quarterback. I don't think John – I think John's got to be the first to say, look, we haven't done a good job here. Uh, and I guess that also brings us to Case Keenum. And, you know, Case Keenum, I don't know if you saw, there's a quote in his book. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. I saw it. Uh, I, I guess what, what did people actually think of Case when they were evaluating him in terms of what his upside what what, what Billy said, I think he's a backup quarterback. I think that's what Billy said. Guys, I got to run. My plane's going to take off, and the shortest is giving me heck because I'm, okay. not, I'm not turning this phone off. But I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. No, fly away. No, no, awesome, awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mike Lombardi via the Buyers Barricades hotline. I, I felt like this was going to be a deal. Like, we were going to ask. He was, at, he was answering in because sometimes – 
you will have an interview where you have to ask like a million questions. You and I, Seth, had uh, what's his name? Some random Texas defensive back on back in like 2014 who we asked literally like 17 questions because the guy wasn't good. Lombardi, I felt like we could have asked 50 questions and he would have given us like really good responses in like 10 seconds. I wonder if I missed a text from him or something. And that is what I did. That was actually that was actually a whole lot of fun, and that was a fun end to our interview with Michael Lombardi. I encourage everybody to subscribe on Radio.com or subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your Deceptively Fast podcast. Having a great time. Uh, supposed to have Marcellus Wiley on tomorrow, so look for that in your downloads, and I will see everybody soon. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.